If I say to you, you're wrong, I disagree with you and give you reasons, that's respect for your autonomy. It's not an insult to it. It's when I say, I'm gonna put you in prison, when I throw something at you, that might be a disrespect. That is probably a disrespect for your autonomy, but engaging you itself in argument is actually the highest respect. It's Kantian respect for your rationality and showing you reasons. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. It is really perilous to make predictions in politics, and often it's very hard to see how the different pieces of the puzzle might fit together. But right now in the United States, it seems to me that there are five main puzzle pieces, and that when you put them together, the picture which emerges is reasonably clear. The first is that Trump is a threat to democracy. I thought that he had lost his ability to shock me. I've been thinking and worrying about him for many years. But the fact that he does appear to have been keen to put himself at the front of the attack on the Capitol in person uh, was shocking to me. The degree to which he's willing to attack democracy is clearer than ever. Secondly, I have become convinced that a second term for Donald Trump would mean more dangerous than the first. In his first presidency, he had no experience in public office. He barely had any loyal followers. He did not initially have control over the Republican Party. And I don't think that he realized on day one that he wanted to undermine the independence of counterbalancing institutions. Should Trump be reelected in 2024, as remains at least relatively likely, according to prediction markets, all of those breaks on his power would be gone. Trump would have four years of experience being president of the United States. He would have a big team of loyalists, many of whom have gained much more experience themselves over the last years. He would have much more complete control of the Republican Party. And from day one, he would want to ensure that countervailing institutions cannot stop him from doing what he wants. The third point is that the integrity of the 2024 election itself is under threat. There has been a series of worrying attempts in states like Arizona throughout the country to politicize the process by which we decide what slate of electors to send to the electoral college. So if the election is very close, we may get a genuine constitutional crisis in which different parts of the state come to disagree about who the legitimately elected president is. That is a very frightening prospect. Now, all of this is more worrying because the prospects of Democrats beating Donald Trump or some ally of his in 2024 are reasonably bleak. Joe Biden is very weak. He is currently less popular than the last 12 presidents were at the same stage of their tenure. He is going to be blamed for inflation, whether or not it is his fault. 
And though I don't believe in conspiracy theories according to which he is so senile that his aides are essentially treating him like a puppet, it is evidence that he is showing the normal signs of his age. And there are very real questions about whether an 81-year-old candidate is best able to represent the Democratic Party. Finally, Kamala Harris, Biden's most likely replacement, is even less likely to beat Donald Trump. In many polls, she has been less popular at lower approval ratings than Joe Biden. Moderates within the party are nervous about her flirtation with far-left slogans like Defend the Police, but the left of the party doesn't trust her either because of her past as a prosecutor and the political shift she has undergone in the last few years. Now, what does all of this mean? How can we write the ship before it sinks? Well, there's a few key points on the agenda. Democrats must prioritize federal legislation, which clarifies how Congress should certify the outcome of future elections and therefore minimizes partisan meddling in the process. They must move back into the cultural mainstream while they should preferably defend the rights of minority groups. Its top leaders must strongly distance themselves from the excesses of the identitarian left. Democrats must stop being mealy-mouthed about concerns on inflation and violent crime. They have to take measures against both of those phenomena insofar as they can, enough to put a dent in them and then take credit for those improvements. Democrats must pass the imperfect legislation for which they have the votes rather than holding out for more ambitious deals that have proven elusive. If they work carefully with every member of their caucus, they will be able to reach compromises on things like Build Back Better. And finally, Democrats should ensure that there is an open primary in 2024. Joe Biden should voluntarily decide not to seek re-election. The party should avoid coronating Kamala Harris as a successor without a real competition. And then we should have a genuinely open primary, which is much more likely to ensure that its eventual victor, whether it is Harris or somebody else, has proven the ability to appeal to a large number of voters and unite the party because people won't be able to claim that the election was somehow rigged. The stakes are high. The prospects for 2024 are not good. But if Democrats take the right decisions, it is possible to avert a very real danger of Donald Trump being re-elected for a second term.
My guest today is Corey Brettschneider. Corey is a professor of political science at Brown University and the editor of the Penguin Liberty series. One of the key questions for liberals is that there's a kind of tension at the heart of liberal philosophy. On the one hand, we believe that the state should be neutral towards different kinds of conceptions of the good, that it is up to citizens themselves to decide what kind of life to live, what kind of moral values to pursue. This is one of the reasons why we defend the freedom of speech. On the other hand, you might think that the state allowing people to spew hatred, to say really awful things, sort of implies a moral complicity with the content of what they say. And that we might want the society to guide in some important ways norms and values that actually allow us to live together and to sustain our society. Well, Corey has thought a lot about how to reconcile those two things, how liberals can protect free speech, be neutral in the right ways, and yet disavow racism, yet have the state be a more active player in building the preconditions for stability in a democratic society. This is what we talked about in our conversation. I learned a lot from it, and I hope you will too. Corey Bretschneider, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Yasha. Pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. So you have just published and edited a collection of texts by some of the most important political thinkers, both past and present, about free speech. In your own word, what is the fundamental case for free speech? Why is free speech so important to a free society? I think often when we're used to hearing defenses of free speech, it's about the importance of personal expression, a sort of idea that the speaker being able to say their own ideas matters for its own sake. But for me, there's a more fundamental question, especially at this moment, and that's the idea that free speech really is a fundamental right in democracy, at least as important as voting rights, as essential as they are. And I sort of take my cues in many ways from Alexander Mickeljohn, who one of the things that this new volume that you mentioned does is publish for the first time in decades, I think, in a kind of cheap volume, <laughs> Mickeljohn's argument about free speech and self-government. And so the argument that I begin with is that, you know, we can't imagine a democratic society in which we're limited in what we're able to say about politics. So Mickeljohn gives this famous metaphor of the town meeting, and he says, I'll give my spin on it. This isn't exactly his example, but it's mine. Imagine that in a town meeting, we're debating, do we build the bridge on the north side of town or the south side of town? And the moderator starts to say, you know what, I think the south side of town argument is really stupid. It's a bridge to nowhere. Nobody could possibly defend that. And instead of just opining, actually cuts off debate from people who want to speak in favor of this bad position. Now, it's sort of a trivial example, but we could replace it with much more fundamental ones. And to my mind, what he's really teaching us through that example, through the metaphor of a town meeting for democracy writ large, is that free speech matters not just for personal expression, but because you have to not only be able to make, but to be able to listen to hear arguments in the democracy from all viewpoints. So for me, especially at this point, that's my starting point. Now, you know, in other work and more academic work, I deal with complications that come from that starting point, like questions of hate speech, questions of speech that would undermine 
democracy. But I think when it comes to your first question about the fundamental value, it's really democracy. I guess I'm realizing that perhaps the way that I pose the question, we usually tend to pose the question, puts the emphasis on something that's important, but insufficient. Because when I think about why I'm such a fervent believer in free speech, and perhaps in certain ways a free speech fundamentalist, it's not actually about the good things that flow from free speech. So I love John Stuart Mill. You obviously have some Mill in the book, and he gives a beautiful account of the good things that flow from having free speech. And I agree with Mill's account of the good things that flow from free speech. But I think a lot about the bad things that flow from not having free speech, which is a different kind of category. And one of the things it seems to me that people haven't thought or written enough about is the way that it raises the stakes of political competition. Part of the fundamental promise of a liberal democracy is to say, we get to argue with each other, we have deep disagreements about who should govern, but I know that if you win the election, I get to continue making my case and I have a chance of winning that in four years. But if I think, hey, if you win, then I might not be able to speak anymore, I might not be able to advocate for my own case anymore, that raises the stakes of political competition to such an extent, but I may not be willing to accept your victory. And that's the situation we're in in many countries today. So I guess, what does reading all of these texts and selecting them, what has it taught you about not the good things of having free speech, which you've just spoken eloquently about, but the bad things that flow from not having it? Yeah, I think that example, to kind of move forward with Michael John's metaphor, what would it look like actually for the moderator of the meeting to just limit who could speak or who couldn't based not on the amount of time that they were taking, for instance, but based on the viewpoint that they're expressing? And, you know, I put it dramatically, I guess, at the beginning, and I think it's consistent certainly with what you said, it would mean the end of democracy. That's my view. Or certainly, if you think of democracy as a scale, it would be less democracy at minimum. And I think to go from the abstract and from this hypothetical to a real example early in the American Republic, one thing that I'm concerned about in my work now is to show these are issues in American democracy, the threat to democracy, not abroad. Of course, Trump is one example of it, but it's not the only early in the Republic. You really see what you're talking about, Yasha, when the Alien Sedition Acts are passed. And these aren't just, you know, limits on the ability to mock John Adams in a sort of Saturday Night Live style, although that's the content of a lot of the prosecutions are mockery. But it really is a deeper problem, which is that the Alien Sedition Acts are passed in order to shut down the opposition party. And before multi-party democracy really gets going in the United States, right at the birth of it, there's an attempt to really silence the other side. And so these things that might look innocuous in any one case, writ large, are, yes, a threat to the existence of democracy. You know, one of the live controversies today about free speech is a fight between its kind of legal understanding and the cultural role that free speech is supposed to play. So when we look, for example, at a recent op-ed by the New York Times editorial board, a lot of people responded to it by saying, well, you know, in the legal sense, free speech is not really under threat. There's no danger, at least right now, that the government will come and lock you up for criticizing Joe Biden or anything like that. And nobody ever said we have a constitutional right to freedom from consequences. So look, if polls show, as the poll that the New York Times Editorial Board Commission did show, that you know 95% of the population think there's a real problem with people being afraid of saying what they might, 
that, you know, there's this kind of censorious culture. Well, perhaps all of that is good. That's not really a limitation on free speech. It's a category mistake to worry about that in terms of free speech. What does the tradition of thinking about free speech tell us about that argument? What does it tell us about the importance of having a culture of free speech? And what does it tell us about the importance not just to be free of the fear of being locked up, but the fear of these very heavy social consequences for speech? I mean, I might pivot a little bit here from the tradition and from what I'm trying to do in the volume that we started off talking about to my own view, because I, I tend to think the tradition is kind of weak in thinking about that problem, that in some ways it's really highlighted as a contemporary problem. And part of the reasons it seems so difficult to us, and I guess I'll give you my answer to it, which I think resolves at least some of the issues through thinking through various categories that are involved in these problems, but is that the history of free speech has often been only about the question of coercion. And I think Mill is an exception on this, but the way he's at least discussed. I was going to say, what about Mill? And for those listeners who've made the great mistake of not reading on liberty anytime in recent years, perhaps you can tell us what Mill's view is and then place it within the sort of larger discussion tradition about it. Yeah. So I should say that I think that oftentimes we talk exclusively about the question of coercion. Should government basically ban or not ban? And on that issue, I think the way I read Mill, certainly, and the way I think about it, we should be very rigid in our rule, that we should basically never allow government, for all the reasons that you and I were talking about in the opening part of the conversation, to ban a view based on its viewpoint or its opinion. So even when it comes, for instance, and here I really am a free speech purist, when it comes to the worst views, the most evil views, the views of the Ku Klux Klan, the views of the Nazi party, when they're not engaged in direct threats or a direct incitement of violence, I think they should, for Micklejohn reasons, get protection. Micklejohn himself was no Marxist, but he was concerned to protect the rights of communists who were preaching insurrection at the time. All that, I think, is fundamental. But, and this is the insight I think we get a little bit in Mill, that's only part of the question. The other part of the question, apart from government coercion, is about what the society is thinking about. And Mill was concerned to show us that free speech would lead to truth in some way. I might not be that ambitious, but I certainly think that if free speech is going to lead to a culture in which the ideas of democracy themselves are undermined by these groups, anti-democratic groups, the ones that I mentioned, then that's an argument against democracy to begin with. So we've got to find a way within the system of protecting all viewpoints to ensure that some don't win. Now, that's a kind of paradox some people have thought it's impossible to do. My own argument, and I make this argument in a book called When the State Speaks, What Should It Say?, is that when citizens engage in speech and when government engages in its own speech, when it sends its own messages, it's got to take a side. It can't be neutral between the Ku Klux Klan and democracy. It's got to take the side of liberal democracy. So sometimes it's sort of said in jest or mocking. It's a quote attributed to Robert Frost that you've heard, that many people have heard, but I've never actually seen evidence that he said it. But the liberal is a person who can't take his own side in an argument. That can't be what liberalism is. There has to be a way to defend democratic values at the same time as protecting dissenting viewpoints. So for me, and I'll touch on cancel culture and how the Times article sort of misses all of this. I think once we've established the rule that government can't punish speech based on its viewpoint, government has to take a stand in defense of liberal democracy. And it has to support those citizens who are protesting, opposing groups like the Ku Klux Klan. 
Now, the danger here is how do you go about that? And I think that the more you can do it through reasoning and the less through social sanction, all the better. Sometimes that might be avoidable, I think, to have some sort of issues that when it comes to the means of response that aren't pure reason. But I think that's the answer to it, that we protect all viewpoints, but we don't think that they're all equal or all equally correct. And I think a lot would be gained by distinguishing between government coercion and really the obligation of not just individuals, but government itself to engage in counter speech against the most atrocious views. So to me, this argument seems to be most relevant, and perhaps I'm missing something here when we think about the debate over hate speech, right? So there's a debate over whether or not the government should be allowed to ban and outlaw hate speech. And I take it that one of the big motivators, stated or unstated, of why the government should be allowed to lock people up for saying really terrible and hateful things is that, you know, we don't want to live in a place where people go around saying these really awful things and there's no way for us in some kind of authoritative way to dissociate ourselves from that. And perhaps there's even a thought that if a government says, well, you have a right to say these hateful things, the government sort of becomes complicit in the saying of those things. But it nearly feels like the government is actually sort of semi-endorsing what is being said by allowing people to say it. And there's a second set of background facts here, which is that there is a deep strain of liberal political philosophy, which says that, you know, one of the real limits on what the state can legitimately do is that it has to recognize the moral autonomy of its citizens, that it's not the role of the state to determine what kind of conception of life is the most valuable. That at the core of our freedoms as citizens of a modern state is that I get to decide for myself whether to be religious or not, what kind of sexual activities to engage in or not, what kind of plan of life to choose for myself. And if there's something wrong if the government comes in and says, hey, your plan of life, your set of religious beliefs, your set of moral convictions are somehow lesser than those of the citizen next door. And that on the most extreme reading, or many readings actually, of what neutrality is required of a state might say, hey, what right do the government institutions have to distinguish between a tolerant view and one that's hateful? As I understand it, you're trying to square the circle, right? You're trying to say, well, perhaps we can have a liberal state that recognizes the moral autonomy of its citizens in the right, appropriate ways, that nevertheless can say, hey, one, hang on a second, these kind of hateful views are not what we want, but without having to go all the way towards outlawing them. So how do we thread the needle here? Yeah, thank you for that. And it was a brilliant way of getting at exactly what my ambition is. And those two points really helped me to bring it out. Because I would say on the complicity point that that's a large part of what I'm motivated by. I find that convincing view that government that is silent about hate speech, for instance, that says nothing about it and just protects it is complicit in it. I agree with that. I call that actually in the book, I think I call it the argument from complicity. And yet what I think is wrong about the extreme neutralist position that you mentioned, that I think is pretty widely held actually among some in the United States. And I should say some too who complain about cancel culture. It is very widely held among a very small circle of people that is our professional training, which is to say, you know, political theories and political philosophers. Right. And law professors of the First Amendment is the other place I see it a lot. But that's right, among professionals is that what's right about it is the silence. Now, here's my response to it. It's a simple one. There's another way to not be silent, to speak, in other words, besides putting people in prison. Government creates public monuments. Presidents give official speeches, states of the union. 
schools teach curricula that are not limiting speech, for instance, that are advancing a certain kind of value, but that are educating in the way that Mill thought would be essential for a society that was going to enjoy free speech to name check him again. So there are lots of ways for government to not be complicit that doesn't involve the act of coercion. So what does that look like in practice, which to say you recognize, as I take it, the importance of a state remaining neutral between different basic conceptions of life. You would agree that if a state says, you know, we are a Christian nation and anybody who doesn't go to church on Sunday is, you know, morally wrong, might not lock them up. We're not going to force them to go to church. But in an authoritative way, we are telling you, you are leading your life wrong. That would presumably be a violation of a kind of neutrality of a state that we do in fact value. But then on your view, very plausibly, or at least I want to endorse that view, saying, you know what, that neo-Nazi rally, we're going to allow it to go ahead. That's the nature of our laws about free speech and assembly. But just to be clear, we hate those views, right? Those are not the views of us as the United States or as Germany or whatever it may be. How do we thread the needle between those two things? When is it appropriate for the state to speak? When is it not appropriate for the state to speak? And how do we make sure that when somebody with a really big stick, which is what a state official is, makes those kind of pronouncements, there isn't an implicit threat of punishment or ill treatment in some kind of context that lurks behind it? Yeah, I start with easy cases, and I think that's one way to do it, and then go on to the hard ones. So when they all say just generally, and I think this responds to an earlier point that you were making, is that government really does not undermine autonomy by taking a position like this in itself, as long as it's not engaged, as I keep saying, in coercive threat. And some people think it is that, oh, by government saying this is right and this is wrong, that that's implicitly a sort of insult to autonomy. I think that that's wrong. I think actually, when you think about it, and let's just move aside from the question of free speech, and this might bring us back into cancel culture too, If I say to you, you're wrong, I disagree with you, and give you reasons, that's respect for your autonomy. It's not an insult to it. It's when I say, I'm going to put you in prison, when I throw something at you, that might be a disrespect. That is probably a disrespect for your autonomy. But engaging you itself in argument is actually the highest respect. It's Kantian respect for your rationality and showing you reasons. So I think if government, in the first instance, can respond rationally by giving reasons, That's not an insult to autonomy. It's the opposite of it. And people are just confused, I think, if they think that it's an insult to autonomy for government to take a position. To the contrary, it's the democracy defending autonomy in itself. Many, I think, people who are deserving of criticism and condemnation by citizens and the state, on my view, and we have to get into what those views are, are themselves opposed to autonomy. So if you think of the Klan, they don't believe that Jewish people are deserving of free speech or that Black people are deserving of free speech. Their whole ambition is to create a white republic that denies those rights based on race. So they're not pro-autonomy in the first place. And to the contrary, the defenders of autonomy who show respect for even dissenters, I think, are valuing autonomy rather than, than criticizing it. The question of line drawing, though, I mean, that's really where a lot of the action has to be. I think that the harder the case becomes and the more we stray from the examples that I started with, the more government and citizens actually should err on the side of listening and on the side of 
not condemning. It's not to say you can't advance views, but I don't want to let the fact that there are hard cases take away from the fact that sometimes the most extreme forms of disprobation, of criticism, even condemnation, consistent with the reason-giving requirement that I suggested, are appropriate. So I think sometimes, and this gets just a little bit at the cancel culture debate, not to deny that there's a real issue here, but sometimes certainly I hear complaints about cancel culture being (laughs) mere criticism of QAnon, of racist views, of white supremacist views, as if, you know, any attempt to say that a view has no place in society, no matter how at odds with liberal democracy, you know, has a right to exist as an equal. And that's just not true. Views that are a threat to democracy, that are anti-science, need to be criticized as strongly as possible. And that's consistent with respect for autonomy. Now, when it goes too far or when it's mere disagreement that's triggering that, that's where I think the, the real nuance is. That the Times maybe could have done a better job of narrowing that down, that you start to worry about a shutdown of the process of reason giving. It's hard to have a democracy It's hard to have deliberation. And so we have to do both. We have to find a way to defend liberal democracy and also build up a culture where reasoning itself is prioritized. Yeah, so I think there's two issues here. One, which is perhaps a philosophical interest, but less practical importance. And the other, which really gets to the heart of a debate about cancel culture. So the first is that I agree with you that criticizing and reason giving is, in fact, a sign of respect, a mark of respect. But it may depend a little bit on the context which is to say that if we are engaged in a conversation, then you saying, I deeply disagree with your view for these and these reasons, is you take me seriously as an interlocutor. If I walk into the CVS to buy a drug I need, and the pharmacist, you know, looks at me and says, you know, why are you not wearing a headscarf if I'm a woman? Or why are you not wearing a keeper? Or why are you wearing a skirt that's too short or whatever else? That starts to feel like, hang on a second, who are you to judge me and my behavior? That's not your role here, right? And I guess the concern about the state is, is the state an interlocutor that is entitled to challenge me or to speak to me in that kind of way? Or is the state actually a kind of agent that we hired to do a set of jobs on my behalf, as the 19th century French political thinker Benjamin Constant might have put it, and suddenly the agent that I've hired to do a bunch of tasks on my behalf is behaving <laughs> like my educator telling right. me that my skirt is too short, right? right? And I guess I wonder whether that's why people have this concern about the state and these reasons. Not that there's something inherently bad about criticism or bad about the process of giving reasons back and forth, but that the state in this image is a little bit more similar to a pharmacist who rather than just giving me whatever, you know, Advil I'm buying, comments on what they see as my moral failings. Right. And I think to answer that, and there are some people who think that's enough of a worry that government should just be quiet, you know, don't do it. The pharmacist is going to do a bad job once he or she starts speaking. It's just not their role. And I don't hold that, obviously, from what I said, but I think there's something to it. And the way that we have to bring out that intuition is that sometimes government speaks about things that it really has no business about. So if government were telling me, you know, that the kind of sexual relationship to have, whether to get married, whether that's a good thing or not, really questions of the good life. I think that's not the kind of thing that's essential for government to do. Now, why is that? When you look at the reasons for free speech in the first place, they're based in the idea of democracy, of listening and hearing, so that we can, as autonomous citizens make decisions about 
what to do collectively. And government's got no business telling me in the town meeting (laughs) who I go home to. So that intuition, I think, is right. Now, are there other things that are relevant to democracy? Absolutely. And that's why groups like the Klan or the Nazis are so not just relevant, but why there's a fundamental obligation, as I put it, of government to criticize, condemn, oppose those views, to protect from coercion, but to criticize and condemn even. And the reason has to do with liberal democracy itself, that the ideas of liberal democracy are not like who I see when I go home, whether I get married, all those issues of the good life, they are fundamental to our collective existence as a self-governing people. Now, how broad and how narrow is that list? What's relevant and what's not? I think that's a good debate to have, but certainly in these extreme cases, they are opponents of democracy. That's why I've identified them. And I think you can see there that it is possible to distinguish Now, sometimes that criteria can be abused, I think, of what's relevant to democracy. So you gave the example of the headscarf and certainly a lot of the French examples where the French government in the name of equality, and they might try to say it's in terms of democracy, I do believe just begins to intrude on religious life. Now, you know, the hard cases, and, you know, arguably that's one of them, are where a lot of the action is. But I don't think it's a categorical error the way it would be. You know, I don't want to hear my pharmacist talk about anything except for the drugs that I'm going to be given or health concerns. I don't want to hear him or her talk to me, you know, about my personal life. But democracy has a a wider terrain. There is a lot of life and some things in personal life that are relevant to it. So I do think, you know, if you're raising your kids in a way that's white supremacists, to go back to the Klan example. And government is engaged in trying to undo that through schooling, through teaching that the Klan is not consistent with the idea of equal protection, that they're opposed to it, actually, from the beginning of their founding. is all about opposing the equal protection clause, opposing really the fundamental words of American democracy, which I find in the 14th Amendment. That is too bad, I think, for the person with the family concern, that they're challenging some fundamental aspect of liberal democracy. The fact that they're doing it in their home, that's not immunity from criticism. That's plausible to me that in a way the distinction runs between the state telling us how to live, which it shouldn't, and the state defending the freedom that all of us should have for how to live. And that defense doesn't involve throwing people in jail for having different opinions on that. But it does involve saying, you know, that protest that we're allowing, which implies that some people shouldn't be freely allowed to choose how they live, really goes against our values. Let's go back for a moment, though, to disentangling where, quote-unquote, cancer culture is a problem and where it's not a problem. So I agree with you that on some specifications, the criticisms of certain views are then described as cancel culture. And certainly there's a sort of very sloppy set of uses of the word cancel culture on the political right and in the Republican Party, where just sort of anything from punishment for crimes that people have committed to just robust criticism of views that they find abhorrent comes to be described as cancel culture. But I guess I bristle a little bit at the emphasis that people put on that. Because I agree that those arguments are made in bad faith, often by bad faith actors, and that we needn't take them seriously. But when an overwhelming majority of the American public, including an overwhelming majority of every demographic group, including Latinos and Black people, 
say that they worry about the censorious nature of American public discourse and that they hold their tongue in many situations for fear of consequences. I don't think they're talking about, I don't like it when anybody ever publicly disagrees with me. They are talking about the fact that they perceive today that, you know, expressing their views on matters might have very real consequences, like the loss of a job, forms of social shunning and social shaming, which mean that suddenly you're cast out of some community, which is really important to your life conception for reasons that can be based in a misunderstanding or in straight out lies or in false rumors. And that seems to me to be a fundamental fact of contemporary American life in a way that goes back exactly to what John Stuart Mill in a different context worried about with what consequences might have been in Victorian England from being suspected of having private sexual affairs or of being suspected of not being a good God-fearing Christian. So how would you describe the current situation of the United States in terms of our freedom from fear of arbitrary collective sanction? And what can we do to create a culture, if you agree with me that there's a problem, where that is less of a concern? Yeah, I think it's a question of overcorrection, possibly. That's how I think about it, because you and I agree, it sounds like, that when it comes to these extreme views, government should be defending democracy. Democracy has to defend itself. So take teacher firing, for example. And I think it is often helpful to sort of break down these larger issues into more specific questions. So teacher firing is an issue I'm very interested in. I think, you know, should you be able to fire a teacher charged, uh, an elementary school teacher about the civil rights movement as a realization of the ideals of the Equal Protection Clause, or I shouldn't say realization, attempt to realize those ideals, who is a member of the Klan or who's exposed by it, or to take very real cases, who's on Facebook saying, you know, deeply, not just offensive, but racist things. And I think, yes, that that follows from my view that government has to find ways to promote its own message. And the Supreme Court's agreed with me here that government officials who undermine the purposes of their job by saying things that are at odds with their job, and that's why I've tried to lay out the case here in that way, can be fired. So I don't want bright line rules in the way that some people might suggest. Now, has there also been an effect of that part of our culture that's led to an overcorrection where people are fearful of making arguments, of saying things about, you know, issues that we really do disagree that aren't questions of white supremacy. Take whether the affirmative action, for instance, is that a violation of equal protection, as the Supreme Court is likely to say in the near future or not. I think, you know, I have my views about that. I'm a defender of affirmative action. But if you take the opposite position and want to say, no, it's not consistent with equal protection, I recognize that that's a real legal and moral debate that we're having. I don't think that's grounds for teacher firing, for instance. So how do you walk that line? I mean, this goes back earlier in our conversation. One way to do it is to say government's just really bad at this and there should be a bright line rule. I hear people say that about university presidents, for instance, who opine on controversies on campus. They should just be silent. And in fact, the Chicago principles on free speech, one deep disagreement I had with the drafters of that set of principles is it really defends neutrality on the grounds that it's just not the competence of university president or university officials to do this. And I think that can't be right either, that the problem of complicity that we started with is so serious that government has to, in some instances, speak up. But we've got to draw the line when it comes to issues about which there is 
as I said, reasonable disagreement. I gave affirmative action as one example. So it's inevitable, I think, in some ways, maybe this is tragic, that the crisis that many people perceive, and I think it is a crisis on the end, too, of people feeling that there isn't a culture of deliberation, that they can't speak up. It's maybe inevitable that we're going to have tensions about line drawing and where that is. Now, what can we do on the other end? I think we can, as best we can, promote a culture of dialogue, of conversation, to speak out as much as I would defend the firing of the white supremacist teacher, to say, look, white supremacy is not all issues of reasonable disagreement, even on matters of race. That's not a satisfying answer if you want a bright line (laughs) rule, and I am more of a you know, balancer of principles. But I think that's what we've got to do. We've got to recognize that there are goals on both sides of government and a culture that promotes equality, but also, and not surprisingly, two of the twin values of liberal democracy, but that the autonomy to speak out also matters and that there are ways of undermining it that aren't just based in criminalization. They might be based in a culture that really disallows conversation on fundamental issues that we absolutely are obligated to be talking about. Look, I agree with much of what you just said, and I agree with the fact that the right way of puzzling through these kinds of questions often isn't to draw a bright line, and that actually often we have a tendency to think from hard cases when it's easier to start with easy cases and then build towards the hard cases. All of that I'm very sympathetic to. I guess I'm just still struck by how fundamentally fear has crept into the American elite. I mean, to give you an example, yesterday evening, I had dinner with a senior media executive who, on a number of dimensions, is very far away from being, you know, an old straight white guy. And they just casually said, well, of course, I agree with you about X and Y topics, but I would never say so. You know, my staff would call for my head and, you know, I just couldn't. And this is completely things that I certainly don't consider bigoted, but I consider to be very well within the realm of liberal political philosophy and, in fact, to flow from the core canons of liberal political philosophy, views that probably between 60 and 90 percent of the U.S. population agree with. And as a matter of course, without seeming to think that there's something strange or shocking about that fact, somebody in a very senior position who actually has certain identity characteristics which would protect them from easy attacks on certain kinds of grounds, said, well, I believe this, but I would never say so publicly. And to me, it's just striking that that is the world we have completely normalized. And so I think the one thing I sort of disagree with you on is the framing of those questions about what you do about, you know, the teacher who's a member of a Ku Klux Klan or who has these secret racist beliefs who thinks, you know, the civil rights movement was a big mistake or something like that. That's not what we're talking about here. I think what we're talking about is much closer to things like, perhaps affirmative action has certain disadvantages and views in that kind of ballpark, and even milder views in that, which, you know, some of the people I know in this country who are really influential hold and are scared to say. And if they're scared to say it, who else is scared to say it? So I guess I just, you know, in the end, perhaps it's not a philosophical disagreement, but a sociological one or an interpretative one. I am shocked by how easily people who have taught me how to think about these issues and who've turned me into a convinced philosophical liberal have been willing to give up on those freedoms. And I'm shocked by the difference between how often when I was in Germany for the fall of last year, 
people would say, of course, I'd never say this publicly, which is to say very rarely. And how often they do that in the United States, which is every time I have a conversation with anybody. So I guess I wonder to what extent we share that sense that there is a real crisis of free speech, particularly among the American elite, uh, where the people who are paranoid go way beyond the people who have racially discriminatory views or are members of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's a kind of silencing argument of the kind that you used to hear. I still do hear from people who are concerned that there is a culture that silences, in a sense, not in terms of legal sanction, but in the sense of culture, that don't want to hear Black voices. And over time, I think we've tried to work on how to change environments so that that sense is neither present externally or perceived. I'm not saying we're there yet, but that's one of the things I think that we're working on. So I guess we have to think about who are the people and what is it that they think that they can't say and come up with strategies that don't involve, for me, the bright line rules, but creating a culture of discourse. And that's partly done through a kind of education that's, you know, unfortunately, that's one thing I'm lamenting that's hard to do in mass. It's hard to do in large MOOCs as much as we might get a lot of people to watch a video that you give of a lecture, as great as that is, and I love to see that happening, there's something about the culture of conversation. I think about it in America's schools that uh, over time, you know, to me, the crisis is certainly not that we're teaching critical race theory, a view that I excerpt in this recent volume on free speech and think has a lot to say about free speech, even when I disagree with it, specifically the views of Charles Lawrence III and a great essay, If He Hollers, Let Him Go. To kind of return to the main point, how do you bring this out? It's a subtle question. Mill was struggling with it. I mean, on liberty doesn't work. Just for listeners, so you and I are not speaking political theory shorthand, the thesis of Mill, right, is that over time, deliberation and free speech will result in the truth because the good ideas will win out and the bad ones won't. Even ideas that might be correct in Mill's sense. He was the original defender of political correctness. He thought there were true views in that sense have to be challenged and that they have to be refined. Now, that's a hard culture to design. And it's one that I think what I hear you saying is that we don't have right now. And I certainly do hear a lot of people saying that one of the most powerful things in the Times op-ed was the survey that shows, as you were referencing, lots of people feel that way. That suggests that we don't have a culture of deliberation, that we have a culture of rigidity. So how do you create that? And again, I don't think there's a bright line rule. I think it's largely an educative process of just trying to create spaces as much as possible of deliberation. I know you're trying to do that with persuasion or other pockets of discussion that are trying to do that. And then, you know, saying to people when they don't respond with argument, when they respond with insult or attempts to engage, not Nazism or the extremism that we're talking about, but real issues with a response about why, no, actually, you know, this is a real issue. I find myself doing that on affirmative action a lot because there is a view that says if you're opposed to affirmative action, you're a white supremacist. I don't think that. I think you're wrong, you know, and I'd like to say why, but certainly that's not a place in which condemnation is called for. It's a place of argument and deliberation. So I don't know, are, are we agreeing now or is there still a place where you want to push back? No, I think that's broadly right. Perhaps I feel more disappointment and a little bit more anger at the people who value their comfortable belonging in elite circles more than we do their duty to actually speak out. I think that, you know, I'm a scholar and a writer 
And I think that involves tremendous privilege that complicated social arrangements society has granted me. And I think the one duty I have is to speak my mind. And I see people around me all of the time who openly admit that they don't and who don't seem to be ashamed of themselves. And frankly, I judge them for that. And then the other thing that, you know, as an old member of the left, I feel just deep betrayal over is that I thought the point of the left was to create a better society. That's what we wished for. And I think when you look at the response to the New York Times editorial, there's two arguments which are at odds with each other. The first is, what are you talking about? There's no such thing as cancel culture. This is all just an invention of Fox News, which I think is contradicted by the fact that 95% of the US population seem to think there is, and that includes members of every political leaning, actually more Democrats than Republicans, that includes members of a demographic group, including African-Americans who are just as likely to say that, according to that survey at least, as whites. But then the other response is logically inconsistent, and it's to say, well, it's always been the case, right? It used to be Black people who were afraid to speak out for their interests and their views, and it used to be gay people who weren't able to speak out, used to be atheists who weren't able to speak out, which is completely right in so far as it goes. That is absolutely true. But it's doing very weird argumentative work where the implication seems to be, and therefore this is not a problem, when surely the fact seems to be that it was unjust when Black people didn't feel able to speak out. It was unjust when atheists didn't feel able to speak out. It was unjust when gay activists didn't feel able to speak out. And the response to that is not to say, well, well, this is just a new form of injustice. It's to say, you know, let us finally build a culture where there aren't people who are afraid to speak out, where there certainly is 95% of the population who says that this is a problem today. Yeah. I mean, it looks like two separate sides battling one another, unless you start, as you and I often do, with the commitment to liberal democracy. And I think if you start that way, it looks like actually it's the same issue, right? Because, you know, the issue of black people in this country feeling silenced is a threat to their fundamental equality and their autonomy. And over time, we've realized that and rightly not enough, but have begun to focus on all of us looking at what we're doing in conversation, who we're mentoring, who we're hiring to fix that problem and how we're actually interacting in the actual interactions. I mean, that's when people talk about structural racism, that sort of subtle silencing is often what we're talking about. Now, when we talk about even the CEO, it's a very different position, of course, a position of privilege, not feeling not able to speak out. I'd say that's also a problem for liberal democracy. You need the powerful to be transparent about their views. One of the problems of not having that transparency is that they're still going to act on them. We just won't be able to examine them, discuss them in public. That's not a healthy thing for democracy either. You said, you know, that they should be ashamed at one point. And I'd say, you know, partly it's an issue of courage in this instance. Uh, There isn't a history of structural racism. There's not a direct parallel in that way. And if you're in a position of privilege, yes, there are external factors, I think, that might be leading to that silencing. But I also feel like, come on, you know, speak out, say you have an obligation, as I think you put it, to say what you believe as a member of a powerful institution, for instance. So we don't hear enough on the left or from liberal Democrats talking about our obligation to create atmospheres of deliberation, but also to, you know, take the risk and to speak out. Now, I know there's social sanction that comes with it. 
But those on the left and the right have to do it. And we have to do, you know, it's a cliche of liberal democracy. I'll defend to the death your right to say it. I, I'm not saying that. I'm not going to defend to the death. None of us have to. There's no threat of the death penalty, right? It's a threat of social criticism. But I think we've all got to just find ways of doing that. You know, and I'll mention some of the best exchanges that I've had and that I value especially during the Trump era, have been with people who are certainly not on my side of things politically. They're not on the extreme right. They were often Trump opponents. But we disagree deeply about matters like I keep giving affirmative action as one, but abortion rights is another. You could go through the list and really don't have the view that says, well, in this point, post-Trump, we've got to just have a sort of rigid <laughs> leftism or something of who we speak to. Those people, you know, I'll mention some of them who I admire. One is a good friend, Steve Calabresi, the Federal Society founder, who called for Trump's impeachment. Do we agree about everything? No, but we've often done events together and, uh, you know, you could keep going with examples like that. And I know that that's not a popular view among many who share my political conclusions. But, you know, I think that's a desperate need in liberal democracy to create a culture of dialogue among people who disagree, not about the fundamentals that we began with, but within a set of a wide range of policy issues. Libertarianism is not a view that I agree with. Do I think that's a view that, you know, has to be silenced and condemned and, you know, that you should be fired for? No, of course not. It's a fundamental justification of the way that much of our society thinks and has operated. And if you don't do it, if we don't have it, the peril, I think, is to the left. You know, it doesn't give us a realm of ideas in which to engage and convince and persuade. And so I think that the stakes are very high. I would say to people, you know, have courage here. Corey Bratschneider, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. Thank you for having me. Great to talk with you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.